Hello, friends. Welcome to The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the pundit, and I'm here today with my dear integral comrade, Dr. Keith Witt, the shrink. Hey, Dr. Keith, how you doing today? Doing really well today. How are you doing? Doing good. It's great to be with you. Uh, you can find more of Dr. Keith's work, including his Therapist in the Wild and School of Love series at drkeithwitt.com. And you can find more of my stuff, uh, including my Daily Evolver blog and podcast at dailyevolver.com. All right, Keith, today we're going to talk about a topic that I think is at the top of the list of human concerns. It always has been, it still is, and I'm guessing it always will be. And that's the topic of sex and particularly sex therapy. And I'm eager to talk about sex therapy because I've always liked therapy. I think this is probably the nature of anybody who gets to the green meme and beyond is that you see therapy as not just something to do to fix a problem, but also just something to do to move forward as part of conscious evolution. And I know you look at it that way. And I am eager to hear your perspective because I think you're you know, you're in the process of doing what needs to be done in any human endeavor, and that is you're creating the integral version of sex therapy. And, and you've worked for over four decades with thousands of people and couples as a psychotherapist in private practice. I'm assuming in that time, sex has come up a time or two. Oh, yeah, a couple of times. <laughs> and also, as a good integralist, You've yeah. studied and practiced in many schools of sex therapy, including tantric and more of the spiritual schools. That's so right. le I guess let's just start with the perspective you have on this. How are you seeing the lay of the land or how can you orient us in what we might start to think of as an integral school of sex therapy? Uh, just a little history. My first offering to integral was integrally informed sex therapy. Uh, when I came to the uh, first uh, integral psychotherapy conference in 2004, I had a monograph that I had written on integrally informed sex therapy, and I had been lecturing about it in, and practicing it in Santa Barbara for a while. Because uh, applying the integral model to what had been done previously um, was so useful, uh, you know, combining David Data's stuff with a lot of the other people that were, were coming up and then expanding it through integral was um, helping the process in, in couples that came in specifically with um, sexual issues. And uh, uh, sex therapy as a discipline really can't be separated from all the other developmental forms, you know, working with individuals and working with couples and mm -hmm. so on. But, you know, when a couple has a problem that specifically involves suffering around their sexuality, then the, the emphasis tends to shift in the therapy to sex therapy. And what Integral does is Integral understands, first of all, that there are a wild variety of variables to take into account from all four quadrants, um, from people's psychographs, um, from their typology uh, types that they are, um, how deep they are in the psychosexual line of development, mm -hmm. integration of defenses line of development, and so on. But also the spirit of Integral um, is... Is, is applied on a large level and even a small level, and specifically in sex therapy. And this is what I mean by that. Um, most people that get into writing about sex or doing, uh, uh, having a system about sex are biased 
towards their own uh, sexuality, their own sense of intimacy, their own, their own, what, they, what has lit them up and mm-hmm. what has seemed meaningful to them historically. And so um, just for some examples, for instance, Masters and Johnson were coming out of the heavy behaviorist era of the 50s and 60s. And so their orientation was very behavioral. And then the American Humanistic Psychology Association kind of got hold of Masters and Johnson, and then you know they kind of uh, made it, and 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 their offspring were a, a wild array of of people's approaches to sexuality, some of which were ridiculous, some of which were effective. Uh, more modern people, David Snarch wrote a book called Passionate Marriage, and he was very heavily into individual differentiation leads to people improving their marriage and sexuality. Susan Johnson, on the other hand, said, um, who's very heavily into attachment theory, um, it, her system, Emotionally Focused Therapy, says you get securely attached and then sex kind of takes care of itself. Um, actually, that's not entirely accurate, but there's some truth to it. A lot of the tantric schools say, well, you know, we can all just blossom and we can use sexuality as a, a vehicle to God. And in this sense, a lot, of, a, a lot of people emphasize either sexual enrichment or sex therapy. And mm-hmm. se- sex therapy really involves, integrally informed sex therapy involves both sexual enrichment and sex therapy. Sexual enrichment is pretty easy. You know, people come in and they need um, what we called in the 70s the plicit model. You know, they either need permission, they need limited information, they need specific suggestions, and if they get that, they do pretty well. And so basically, these people want enrichment, and they have a pretty solid relationship foundation to build uh, upon a pretty solid sense of self. But realistically speaking, nobody who comes in therapy uh, wanting sexual enrichment doesn't encounter sexual blocks, sexual conflicts, and sexual destructive uh, shadow patterns. Mm-hmm. Everybody does. It's, it's built into um, our genome to a certain extent right. in that human societies have genetic predispositions to control uh, sexual impulses and violent impulses. You know, we couldn't exist in tribes without those. And so now the forms of how those are regulated in, in tribes vary to a certain extent, though not as much as you might think. I mean, the, the, for instance, the institution of pair bonding, uh, the institution of falling in love with people, lusting people, and then claiming them. This is pretty consistent. Even uh, through tribal, every, e- even in early tribal times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From, from the time that people had some level of self-aware consciousness, if we could see those little cultures, they would have uh, cultural forms that would regulate uh, sexual impulses and violent impulses to some extent. Right. Well, this is one of the things that, from an integral perspective, we always want to look at, you know, what led up to where we are. And so, you know, we have early humans, a tribal sex was, what, was it pair bonded? Was it communal? Uh, Was it both? Uh, Well, first of all, the pair bond is built in to the human genome. Okay. So there's always going to be pair bonds. Right. Romantic infatuation is built in. So there's always going to be people falling in love. Lust is built in. We're always going to see people we want. And if there's some, if there's a, if there's a cultural permission in some level or or some form where we can uh, take and be taken when we want to take and be taken, we're going to do it. So that's always going to happen. Now, within the context of that, there's all kinds of other forms. Um, particularly during agrarian society, guys used to stockpile women, you know, so there was a lot of um, polygamy, not much polyandry. But green places like uh, the poles, where, where there were extreme um, uh, environmental stressors, you would have uh, situations where there was one wife and a couple of husbands. Um, 
In, in that sense, geography has an, has an effect. Right. So there's a, there's a lot of forms that humans can, can encounter. And because we're humans, we take all the drives and turn them into art. We take the sex yeah. drives, of which there are at least three of them, and we turn them into art. And that's where we get a lot of the variations, not just in between people, but variations that we have throughout the lifespan. Uh, most of the people that I know had different attitudes towards the sexual relationships um, as adolescents, as young adults, uh, as, uh, and then as older adults and middle-aged yeah, adults. true. Yeah. Well, just to go back to the history then, so the, we have the, the warrior stage, which would be the red stage. That would be more male-dominant. Yeah. And then the traditional stage, I mean, we have a word for sex as the traditional stage. It's the missionaries, the missionary yeah, position, right. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of guilty and furtive, but you get her done, you know. Uh, right. Modern, modern, maybe we think of as less tied to procreation, I'm thinking, right? Absolutely. Well, and, and, and tied to fulfillment. Yeah. Remember that the orange meme is an individual meme, so my individual fulfillment is a big deal. And that's orange. where a lot of people are. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when, as there, there got to be more orange, um, value mean people, there got to be, and you see this in, in cultures, you have more egalitarianism in orange, um, technological society and you get a lot more divorce. Right. Because, you know, I'm not being fulfilled, so I'm out of here. Yeah, exactly. And, and sexual fulfillment, romantic fulfillment is one of the fulfillments that a lot of us, uh, demand now in relationships. Yeah. So then we move to postmodern or green and that's more experimental. Uh, by this time, men and women are equal, and so there's sort of an anti-polarity there that's kind of strangely unsexy, even yes. though there's all this experimentation. And yeah, David Data would, said that the second stage, you depolarize. Um, and he, you know, he was right about that. I, I have literally had couples come in where I've said to them, you know, your feminine needs to shine at his masculine. Yeah. Your masculine presence needs to confidently, you know, create a trustable container where you can provide masculine direction to her feminine radiance. And I've had uh, a I remember one woman saying, wait a minute, you know, everybody's equal. You know, how about his feminine radiance? How about my masculine presence? Right. And I go, well, that's fine. You know, if that's what gets you off, you know, if you want to be the leader in the dance and he wants to be the follower in the dance and that gets you guys off, that's fine. Well, you, but, you might argue that in, in a more integral relationship, they would maybe be able to switch off like that. Sophisticated lovers do. Yeah. What, what, you, find, what you find if your sexual essence is more feminine or more masculine is that most of the time, if your sexual essence is more masculine, you, most of the time you're the leader in the dance. Yeah. And if your sexual essence is more feminine, most of the time you're the follower in the dance, but not all the time. Right. And development generally in the psychosexual line of development, um, particularly with a couple that is growing, and there's demand requirements. You know, another thing about, about integral is you validate everything through all four quadrants, through eight methodologies. Right. Uh, you know, integral methodological pluralism is, an, is underutilized as a cross-validation system. Because if a system is not working, one of those modalities is going to say that it's not working, and we need to make a shift. Yeah. Um, well, it's like you and, said, you, you, you mentioned some of the schools of thought of sex therapy, Masters and Johnson and David mm -hmm. Snarch and, and Sacred Intimacy and even Tantra. An integral perspective would say, which of those works best in this situation? And it may change as a couple evolves, right? Yeah. And if one system isn't working, try another. Yeah. And this is the other thing about integral. Everybody gets to be right, but nobody gets to be right all the time. 
So on a, on a micro level, a couple comes in and, you know, she thinks they're having sex problems because he is not attuning to her or, or to her needs or understanding her. And he thinks they're having sex problems because she's not interested and not, not flexible and so on. And they're both right. You know, it's not like they're wrong about that. Right. Um, but they're not 100% right. You know, there, there are other issues that are, are going on. Um, and, that's, and that's also true in the, the, all the systems. For instance, in the sacred intimacy system, um, you know, some practitioners will engage in extended um, sexual relationships with, um, uh, sometimes it's women and men, more often it's men and women, which can be really liberating erotically unless um, internalized conflicts, psychopathology, um, relationship issues, past trauma show up. At that particular point, those relationships go to hell and they blow up. Hmm. And so if you're a sacred intimacy person and you don't know about that stuff, you, know, you can have a great, great experience with a couple of clients and then you can have a client that uh, all of a sudden um, there's just waves of negative drama that come crashing down that don't resolve with reasoned dialogue. Okay? And then you, that, you have to shift into a psychotherapeutic model at that point. Now, that being said, if you just have... Uh, a traditional 20th century psychotherapeutic model, people come in with sex problems and you tend to pathologize them. One of my pet peeves about this is female hypoactive sexual arousal disorder. You know, uh, one study said 35% of women in America can be categorized as having hypoactive sexual arousal disorder. And I go, That's, that is a cultural pathology. And not only that, it's not taking into account the right quadrants in terms of how women's sexuality actually works. And what so it does the, the hypo... is a third of the women in the world, um, uh, which drives me crazy. You know, yeah. I see that term in, in, in the diagnostic manual, and I just feel like ripping my hair out. I'm not following exactly. So hypoact, so this means that they don't have enough sex drive, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Basically, so this is 35%. don't have enough sex drive. It's what we used to call frigid. Yeah. Okay. All right. So 35% okay, of women... What this, what this doesn't take into account, one, is that women's sexuality is just as strong as guys, but it's different. It's yeah. more episodic and it's more contextual. And secondly, women in, in intimate bonding often shift from desire leads to arousal to arousal leads to desire. All right. Say that again. I mean, so, so our listeners are, you know, there's men listening, they have wives. They're, yeah. you know, so... There's women listening to have husbands. That's right. And there's gay people. There's I'm gay. And, you know, these polarities still exist in gay relationships, too. That's so, right. you know, it, just as vividly, I think, as they do in straight relationships. It's the strangest thing, but it's true. Yep. So, um, so okay. So somebody's lacking desire or not responding. What do we do that we're not doing? What, what would you counsel somebody who's in that kind of a relationship? So a couple comes in and that's happening. And she says, well, I don't feel like it. And I go, all right, so how long have you two been together? Ten years. And how did you feel in the beginning? Oh, I felt like it. And then I stopped feeling like it. You know, we, and the, the explanation will always be within the context of life. I got tired. I had kids. You know, I don't like my body as much as I did because I put on some weight or something. Right. And so the, one of the first things I let them know is that physiologically, when women pass from romantic infatuation, which is a limited time frame, six six months to a couple of years, into intimate bonding, often their sexuality shifts so that rather than feeling like having sex and then having sex, they start having sex and then they start feeling like having sex. 
And, and so we have the conversation, uh, do it when you don't feel like it. Yeah. Now, green people hate this. Yeah. They go, what do you mean? You know, I'm supposed to submit to the guy. I'm supposed to do this. Well, exactly. This, this. It's back to the patriarchy. They the back to patriarchy. How dare you suggest that? <laughs> and I go, okay, I, I'm not exactly suggesting that, but I certainly can understand your distress and outrage. Um, but the way that you're wired is that let's, the last time you made love, did you feel like it? Well, I don't know. You know, we just, he just kind of started, and I kind of said yes. And then, and then I said, so what did you guys say to each other after you were all done? And five times out of six, um, one of them will say, well, we said something like, we should do this more often. <laughs> and, I go, and I went, yeah. So you, you said that, right? And she said, yeah, we said that. You know, we feel great. There's a glow afterwards. I said, so why don't you do it more often? She goes, well, I don't know. I don't feel like it. And I go, well. So when you're in romantic infatuation or in lust, if you're a woman, desire leads to arousal. But in intimate bonding, often arousal leads to desire. Right. And so when he makes an overture, then, and you kind of go, eh, I don't feel like it, go deeper inside your heart and go, all right, first of all, how am I going to be feeling in five minutes if we start? Second of all, how, what's best for me and for our relationship? You know, making love right now or not making love right now. Okay? Right. And then answer. And then that changes things. You, you know, John Gottman, my favorite couples researcher, studied a bunch of couples, and there was a... One group of them had plenty of sex and were happy, and one group of them were miserable sexually. And he found one characteristic that um, characterized the happy sex couples from the unhappy sex couples. And I was completely surprised by this study. I never would have predicted this. What he found was that in the happy sex couples, when one person made an overture, said, you know, let's make love, you know, whatever they, however they make an overture, and the other person said no. They responded with love. They didn't respond neutral or negative. Oh, damn, you know, you never, you know, they did that, or just neutral. They responded in positive. Oh, that's fine. I love you. So the person who was, you know, so-called rejected uh, had a loving response. Had a loving response. Yeah. That was the one characteristic that yeah. separated those two couples. Yeah. You those, can see how powerful couples. that is. Now, from an integral standpoint, you look at that and you go, well... You see, a, you see a data point like that, and you know that since everybody is a bunch of processes all the time, you know that, that what that data point represents is a convergence of a lot of different processes. And here's the convergence of processes. A couple that's able to do that is pretty friendly with each other. You know, they, they like each other. You say, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you know, I still love you, that's fine. That's what you say to somebody you like, okay? Um, the couple that's able to say that to each other don't fear each other. You know, you're not, you're not afraid to say no. You're not afraid that, that, that this person is going to deprive you of something. You know, you're, not, you're, you're going to be positive about them. Um, uh, another thing that would, would characterize this couple is, is they feel they have a capacity um, to go a couple of levels deeper in terms of self-observation and self-expression with each other. Okay? That, that, you know, they don't go to a negative story. You know, they, they, they keep positive stories about themselves and about each other. Now, these are relatively sophisticated capacities that some people have more of, everybody has more or less of them. And in a relationship, if one person has a lot less of one of those, um, then they're going to have start having problems. And since sex is one of the most vulnerable areas of a relationship, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine to a certain extent. It's most vulnerable to being injured when there are other couple, couple problems going on. 
they're going to start having sex problems. Uh, and, you know, the, the most common problem is uh, um, losing each other sexually. But, you know, sometimes there's other problems. Uh, you, know, you know, she'll be down on him for his pornography uh, looking. Uh, maybe somebody will be unfaithful. Um, maybe one person insists upon certain kinds of practices because they have a fetish or a kink, and the other person finds that's offensive. You know, those kinds of problems come up also. Um, Mostly what happens is they really can't talk comfortably about sex. You know, on my website, um, I have a series of mini classes that I offer about talking with your lover about sex, and there's mm -hmm. five of them. And they're all, they're all, what, two or three bucks, I forget how much, but just I, I made them really inexpensive. And these are just designed for a couple to buy these, these, these little classes and go through a series of areas of their sexuality and talk to each other about them. And notice where they're comfortable and uncomfortable. And if they're uncomfortable, go find a therapist to help you make be more comfortable. Um, often, when when you can talk comfortably about an area, um, you can make progress in terms of changing things in that area, which is a really big deal. I was just going to say that it's sort of the killer app in general uh, with relationships is to the the degree that you can actually, you know be willing to show yourself and see the other person for who they are. And, and how we do that is, you know, talking and, and making love and sort of some nonverbal ways of doing that too. But you really have to be doing that or it just goes stale. And in the process, in, which is, this makes this more demanding, you need to be able to do it and also acknowledge uh, we have strengths and weaknesses. We have, we have blocks and inhibitions and even psychopathologies that if we have those, we're working on them and changing and we're giving and receiving positive influence from each other. That capacity to give and receive positive influence is one of the, the most robust predictors of happy relationships. Fantastic. It yeah. makes perfect sense. Now, some people in relationships, they normalize states of tension or of crabbiness or of irritability. Um, they're, they're called attractor states in, in, in neurobiology. And, and so they... What they'll do is, if there's a little bit of stress, they, bam, they go to a, 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 a shared negative state, mm -hmm. shared criticism or suspicion or distrust or tension and so on. And so in those states, people feel defensive. They're not very flexible. They don't give, give and receive much positive influence. Actually, they're giving and receiving negative influence. And so this is where sex therapy hits in. You know, those states need to become, one, visible. And then also what you make visible to people is positive states where they're positive about themselves and their partner, and their partner is positive about themselves and you. And then in that state, you go, look, this is the state that you need to practice, practice, practice until it becomes a trait. And this is where we get into the integral concept of progressive waves of development. In a way, you can see the stage as where you look from, and the state is what you're moving toward. And if you continue to move toward a particular state, after a while, you are coming from that place, and now it's become a right. stable part of your relationship or of yourself. And couples need to do that with positive states of engagement with each other until those become reflexive. Those become default mode states uh, with them. So you would actually work with couples to do that with each other. Yeah. And, and these, are so, some, these are some of the questions that you've identified that you, you uh, have on your website or, uh, I mean, like what, what, for instance, would I do with my partner to uh, practice creating these, positive states with each other? Well, first of all, you could go on Keith's website and uh, get the, the 
five mini classes on how to talk to your lover about sex. Yeah. And then do that with your lover. But what are some um, of the, I mean, give us a couple freebies here. What, what, like, okay. what, what do we, sure. yeah. Okay. So here's one of my favorites. So, um, the, there's a concept called love map of the kind of person that you're interested in. You know, I, you know, you like somebody who's tall or short or dark hair, or dark hair, or smells a certain way, whatever. Um, you know, people tend to be attracted to people kind of like themselves with, in terms of uh, cultural history and, and level of education and stuff. But there's also a lust map. <laughs> so here's a lust map. You can make a lust map. You get a big sheet of paper in the middle. You put my lust map. And then you put all the Already, I got to say, Keith, already I'm nervous. <laughs> all right, so we, but we got to do this. Jeff, I, my Jeff's lust map. Jeff's lust map. And then you put all the things that turn you on or turn you off sexually with little wavy lines, little wavy line from the middle. And you put, well, it turns me on when I'm on top, turns me on when he's on top, turns me off when he talks during sex, turns me on when he talks during sex, uh, turns, lingerie turns me off, lingerie turns me on. Right. See, so just anything. Uh, kissing, uh, and and not only do you do that in your lust map, you go. It turns this turns me on in the beginning of lovemaking. Uh, this I like this in the middle of lovemaking, but not you know a lot of people like lighter kisses in the beginning of lovemaking and deeper, wetter kisses towards the end of lovemaking, <laughs> for instance. So you put all that stuff, you know, and then you do it with different colors, and you know, draw little pictures or paste picture paste uh, 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 images from magazines on it or little flowers or whatever. Make a big lust map. You know, if everything that turns you on turns you off. And then take that to your lover and say, let's look at my lust map together. Oh, my God. <laughs> Even better, get your lover to do it. And then you both look at each other's lust maps. And you go, what? You're really, what? Your feet? Really? Licking toes? That really gets you? Well, I, mean, I never really told you the licking toes got me off. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you could uh, be, you know, married to, you know, sexually active with the same person for 10, 15, 20 years and not know these things. It's astonishing how we keep this stuff to ourselves. And and part of it is, I'm not only ashamed to admit that to my lover, I'm ashamed to admit that to myself. <laughs> you know? Well, and also, you know, you don't have to share everything, but but there's a difference between not sharing and hiding. Yeah. You know, like... Becky, Pro Becky is not that interested Becky's in your my wife. erotic fantasies. Uh, Becky's your wife, right? Here? Yeah, she's so my just wife. To, you know, we've been together 42 okay, years. Yeah, 42 years. Uh, okay, now, if she asks me about my erotic fantasies, I tell her. But, you know, she's just not that interested. Okay? So I'm not hiding my erotic fantasies from her. Right. But I don't talk about them. Why? You know, that, it's just... It, it, that's She's indifferent to them. It, you know, if anything, it would be irritating to her. <laughs> okay, so... So, so there's a difference. You don't have to share everything, but you need to not hide anything. And the difference between not sharing and hiding is profound. And most couples have never looked at that. They've never looked at that difference. And the other part of this is sex is very contextual, more so actually for women than for men. And that's true for all mammals. <laughs> Come and bites are, you know, having sex. And you put a little cheese in there. And the male just keeps fucking all the way. You know, he doesn't care about the species having his sex. And the female goes, oh, jeez, wow. It, 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 it's not like she's not having fun having sex, but she's contextual. She's more aware of the context. And that's true for, for men and women. Women see better, hear better, taste more, see better in the dark than men. They have more social circuits. They're more aware of social context, and they're more aware of environmental context than guys. 
And so, you know, guys, if you're leading your partner, if you're the, the masculine leader of, of the sexual dance, then you need to expand your, your awareness into the context where the dance takes place. Because if you're a guy and it doesn't matter to you, it might matter a hell of a lot to your partner. Yeah. Uh, so these are the kinds of, of things that need to be discussed. And when people discuss them, a lot of shame comes up, a lot of resentment comes up, and a lot of fear comes up. Yeah. And also trauma comes up. Because 10% of guys and 20% of women in this culture have been traumatized sexually by somebody when they were kids. Often, you know, it's, sometimes it's, it's a minor, sometimes it's major, sometimes it's uh, a stepfather, a father, a brother, uncle, yeah. a grandfather, that kind of stuff. Um, that scrambles you sexually. You know, being sexualized in a, in a pathological context scrambles your sexual development and, you know, it has effects on your later sexuality. And... It, those effects can make you hypersexual. Those effects can make you non-sexual. Those effects can, can make you self-destructively sexual. And some of these, these, you know, this is why casual hookups are, to me, uh, just personally. You know, if I was single, I wouldn't be particularly into casual hookups because people are really complicated. Yeah. You know, I had a client once who was traumatized sexually when she was a kid, but she grew up to be a beautiful, promiscuous woman. Okay, none of the guys she said yes to really were much interested in the fact that her promiscuity probably reflected some kind of early trauma. You know, here's a beautiful woman who wants right. to have sex with her, with, with them, go ahead, let's go for it. You know, they didn't say, you know, you know you're, you're making reckless, self-destructive decisions about sex, what's the deal here? Um, similarly, if there's a guy who's a really heavy womanizer, you know, one woman after another, after another, after another, while some woman, while he's, you know, charming some woman, you know, and showing her a good time, letting her feel like she's beautiful and great and all that stuff. She doesn't say, you know, there's probably some injury in you that makes you do this again and again and again. You know, and that injury is a problem, don't you think? So if you're very successful out of your sexual injury, often your sexual injury doesn't get attention until at some point or another you realize it's limiting you. Often in an intimate relationship where the truth be revealed, you know, you go into intimate bonding and whatever defenses you have or wounds you have, you're going to come out in an intimate bonded relationship and you and your partner suffer if you don't address those. And this is an integrally informed approach to, uh, to sex therapy. You know, you go, all right, so if, if there is a problem arising, we look from a, a wide variety of perspectives. You know, we look with interest and we look with compassion. And then when mm -hmm. we start identifying stuff, we start looking at ways to make the shifts cognitively, emotionally and relationally and sexually and all this other stuff, physically, so that you start feeling better in that area. And sometimes people have to go back and do trauma work on early trauma. And so you do that. You shift into that mode. Sometimes people need to acknowledge certain, you know, desires they have and then enact that desire. Uh, uh, one woman I worked with really liked the idea of dancing naked in front of her partner. You know, and he wasn't real positive about that. And so, you know, he had to get more positive about it, and he did. Mm -hmm. you know, and then she danced naked in front of him and mm. felt accepted and sexy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that led, that was a sexual enrichment moment for them. Yeah. But the sex therapy moment needed to go through the, the inhibitions that, that they, they both had to enact that fantasy of hers. Yeah. God, just makes me realize how much easier our grandparents and great-grandparents had it. You know, they just yeah. did it, got it over well, with. Well, you know, and... some of them had it super easy. Yeah. Because, you know, if you have a sexual thing where the guy is a loving guy, and he goes, okay, I'm going to make love when I feel like it when I think you need it. And she has devotional surrender to a loving guy. So he can call the shots. She just says yes most of the time. And, you know, they have a good time, and they do whatever they both like. 
so I'm sure there were just millions of just really happy, wonderful Absolutely. sexual relationships that were run off of that system. Yeah. In, in modern egalitarian, postmodern and post-postmodern world, you know, those kinds of arrangements have to be negotiated. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah. If, and if you can't talk about sex, you're going to have a hell of a time negotiating those arrangements. Well, that's just a development in general is that, you know, there's just more to worry about. There's more to, you know, notice. There's We just become more complex. It's like the Google map of ourselves gets yeah. more and more topography. There's more and more to deal with. This is a good thing. I'm not complaining. It's just, you know, complicated in ways that our ancestors really didn't have to deal with. Um, yeah, but and, the dialectic of progress. With absolutely. Every step forward, there's new yes. pathologies that emerge. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting to think of that traditional stage of development, what you were just talking about. If if you see sex as a gift from God, and there's the man and there's the woman, and God made the man and God made the woman, already I'm feeling excited just talking about it. <laughs> You know, I mean that 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 can be, and we know from from statistics that that people in traditional, more conservative, even religious marriages uh, have higher sexual satisfaction than a lot of people at the higher stages that are, you know, working with, as you just said, negotiating it all. Yeah, that negotiation isn't very sexy. No, uh, there, there was a, there's a movement. It's probably still going on where a lot of ministers. We're getting together with the couples in their congregation and giving them a sex challenge. Yes. The sex challenge was to have sex every night for like 30 days. I, I've seen that. Okay. And, and, you know, and, and not just grudgingly. You know, have a good time. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, a study was done actually where people were d- directed to have more frequent sex, and actually that didn't work in the study. Mm. People resented it, had a bad time, and it, yeah. and it, was, it was kind of a miserable intervention. <laughs> but, you know, I suspect that, that was, those weren't blue people that were right. being instructed. Right. You know, when your minister's out there saying, you know, go out and have sex every day and have a good time. It's like, yeah. Boy, yeah. No, I always think of the sort of the other side of the street on the, in the traditional is, uh, this great line from Paul Begala, you know, he's the, the political commentator. And, oh, yeah. And he, he was raised in Catholic school and raised very Catholic. And he said that he was taught uh, by the priests and the nuns that sex was a dirty, disgusting act that you save for the person you love the most. <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> go. Sort of schizophrenia. You know, luckily for, for conformity, conformity doesn't have to make sense. Yeah. Because it's pre-rational, and so we don't have to make any rational sense, uh, as, as we see frequently <laughs> right. from the blue, blue value meme. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. So our, our listeners are people who are interested in integral theory, and you know they recognize themselves in, in you know, orange, they recognize their green, they recognize, and they're working on developing an integral uh, residency where you can live and, and just have more options and more fun. And, and so... Where do you think the, you know, where does integral sex therapy work on the leading edge? I'm hearing that it's about really talking and and being friendly and creating a positive container. I think that's really important. I I, I like that part a lot. And then working with revealing our, you know, our desires, not hiding things, Mm -hmm. uh, having that large container that can, that will accommodate our individuality and our own, you know, individual kinks and preferences and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's it, right? It's something like that. Well, yes. And there's, there's also, 
you know, we've talked in other times that there's different kinds of commitments. In the beginning of a relationship, you have a commitment. I'm going to stay as long as something's working. Yeah. Okay. Well, when you get when you, you go to the intimate bonding stage, you're, you're in a commitment where I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to do what it takes can be I'm going to do what it takes to stay together, which is what, how most people interpret that. But that's really not the best interpretation or the healthiest interpretation of I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to do what it takes. The commitment, the healthy version is I'm going to do what it takes for me and you to be fulfilled in our relationship mm-hmm. in the ways that we want to be fulfilled. Okay, so that means on one hand, I have a commitment to do what it takes so that I feel fulfilled sexually and you feel fulfilled sexually. And we'll continue to work at it and, and make progress on that um, with that goal. And, you know, and, and do what it takes. And if what it takes is when you say no, I need to meet you with love, okay. Mm-hmm. If, if what it takes is I need to um, ask myself when I don't feel like it, is what serves the highest good, and say yes if it serves the highest good, okay. And I could go on and on. So that's one side of it, you know, that, that shared commitment to mutual fulfillment and, and be, being rigorous about if it's, if it's not happening, we need to be making it happen. And if we can't do it with each other, we get people to help us do it with each other right. and so on. Now, here's the other part of it that's more interesting to me these days, because as you know, I'm writing a book about shadow. We always have up, upwellings of, of constructive and destructive shadow coming through us all the time. Um, uh, this is a burden for self-aware consciousness, the destructive shadow. The constructive shadow isn't. Um, you know, our good habits, our desires to be pro-social, and our desires to take care of ourselves and be healthy and be joyful and, and uh, to engage meaningful activity. Mm-hmm. But we have destructive shadow. We have shadow to block, uh, uh, to dissociate away from uh, scary topics, to um, uh, respond with emotional violence if we feel threatened, um, to hold on to distorted perspectives when it's scary uh, to, look, to look at things. And so this flow of constructive and destructive shadow up from non-consciousness into consciousness is happening all the time. It happens all the time we're awake. It happens while we dream. It happens while we daydream. Hmm. It's happening all the time. Most people don't know how to manage destructive shadow, and it causes a lot of problems. And this is one of the reasons that I wrote the book, The Gift of Shame, because people try to avoid shame rather than to dive into it and go, all right, um, shame wants me to avoid some aspect of what's going on. Instead, I'm going to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, Destructive shadow makes me want to hold on to a critical belief about you. What's that about? Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I uh, uh, dialysize that? How can I alchemically trans- uh, transmute that into compassionate understanding? Um, having that, that commitment to the self, to just uh, be aware of the, the constant um, outflow of constructive and destructive shadow, and saying yes to the constructive shadow messages, and and examining with compassion the destructive ones and, and then feeding back into our, into our non-conscious, into our shadow, um, more compassionate understandings. That helps us grow our shadow, and particularly if you're dealing with sexual stuff, it helps us grow sexually. It helps us become more fulfilled people. Um, if I have, like, body issues, you know, I'm getting old. I'm not as thin as I used to be, you know. I, I don't feel as sexy as I did. Um, you know, it's more trouble than it's worth. Um, <laughs> is that shadow or is that just, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm conscious of that. So it's not shadow. Well, as that emerges, 
and there's these criticisms of self, okay? Those criticisms of self, and sometimes it's shame. So if it's shame, then I just don't want to look at my body. Yeah. If you don't want to look at it, you know, you don't want to think about it. You know, it's the hell with it. You know, pass the potato chips. Right. Turn out the lights. Turn out the lights. Um, and so, say you look at it and you go, okay, so I don't feel great about my body. So one, what can I do to feel better about my body? I can eat healthier. I can exercise more. I can cultivate a sense of love. Two, with my lover, I can recognize that when we're making love, I am the embodiment of, of either masculine or feminine. Yeah. I'm the embodiment of, of the lover, and I need to inhabit that, and my body is the vehicle of that. Yeah. And that so you basically expand so, your identity to be bigger than your body. And so, you, you, you know, if you're, you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, when you're making love, say you're a woman, you're, you're the embodiment of the sex goddess, and you need to feel that light flowing yeah. from you nice. in the world and feel that light lighting him on fire. You know, and you're the guy, you need to feel the warrior coming through you, 40, 50, 60, 70. You need to feel the warrior man of wisdom coming through you in forms of presence in terms of you knowing and claiming your partner and leading her into bliss. And feel the beauty of that and the grace of that and the power of that. You know, those energies are energies that are always there and that you have a responsibility to activate in the sexual occasion. And you have a responsibility to activate them other times when you're engaged in loving contact. Well, and, and you know, couples responsi- that have great sex have a lot of other. They have a lot of affection, yeah. and they have a lot of endearments. And you know, if they're if they're going to have an argument, um, those they generally will start the argument in a more positive rather than a, rather than a more negative way. Well, that's fantastic. I love that. So I'm not just Jeff, sixty-two and twenty pounds overweight. <laughs> I'm the essence of the male warrior. I like that. Right. I mean, I can do that. Actually, yes, you can. I mean, especially if the you know the lights are down. And then also, candlelight is very forgiving. Totally, believe me, I'm onto it. Um, (laughs) And then on the other side, I want to also recognize who my partner is beyond their, you know, individual identity. You know what I'm what I'm working with in terms of, you know, if I'm in a heterosexual relationship with the the radiant feminine. My goodness, not just my 62 year old wife, but the radiant feminine. That's fantastic. And you know, you know, people will ask me, a guy will say, you know, I, I fantasize during sex, I feel guilty. I go, well, what do you fantasize? Well, sometimes I go, I fantasize other women and then I get confused. I go, okay. And what else? Sometimes I go, well, you know, I fantasize my wife doing something. I said, so, you, you know, so you're fantasizing her, right? He goes, yeah. So if you're fantasizing her as what? Younger, taller, shorter, whatever. More, more bodacious, less bodacious. And that makes you more turned on to her. That's good fantasy. Okay? That's, mm-hmm. Sure, bring that in. Fantasize whatever you want that leaves you subjectively more turned on to her, you know, to her heart, to her essence, to her body. You know? And so there's those genres that emerge um, of fantasies that connect and fantasies that separate. So it's not like, you know, fantasizing during sex is a bad thing. You know, fantasizing there's sex is a great thing if it connects you. It's not a great thing if it separates you. And this is, again, you look for, for all four quadrants of that. Yeah. Well, you could even say that about porn. Absolutely. And you know. I've said it about porn on many occasions. Saying porn's a problem is like saying, um, I don't know, alcohol's a problem. Alcohol's a problem if you use it addictively. Alcohol's not a problem if you don't. 
Yeah. Point the problem if you use it addictively and or if you use it in a way that interferes with your relationship and it's not a problem if you don't. Yeah. I mean, porn can be used as a way of actually together looking at things that turn you on together. Yes, though it's interesting. Women tend to be less interested in that in relationships than the men that I work with, because men are more visually erotic. Yeah. Uh, and another interesting uh, corollary of that, you know, there's there's problems there, there's there's problems that the porn has brought to the culture, and then there's there's good things. One good thing that porn has brought to the culture is kind of desensitized people on a wide variety of sexual practices. You know, the, you know, people that have they that have watched porn, you know, throughout their developmental years, don't really have as many critical judgments about sexual practices as people that never saw such practices and didn't yeah. just kind of normalize it. Yeah. And the other kind about that, of course, is that uh, uh, you can, porn can be, can be used addictively, particularly if you're an urgent um, adolescent guy who's thinking about sex all the time. And then you develop such strong habits of eroticism through porn that you kind of have to work to develop interpersonal erotic yeah. habits when you start having sex. Well, there's a, 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 quite a movement among particularly younger men. I see it on Reddit um, where these men have become just basically polluted with porn. They've had it since they're 11, 10, 11 years old, all they mm -hmm. want, you know. I mean, it's really astonishing if you think of the culture, cultural experiment what's going on with the pro proliferation of porn into the culture uh, without anybody like really thinking about it. It just sort of happened. And, and these young guys find themselves impotent at 21 because they well, can't deal with real women or, you know, real partners. So, you know, the problem with that, to my, it might be a problem with access to porn, certainly with, you know, younger kids. But the real problem with that is that, there isn't culturally accepted ways for age-appropriate sexual experimentation with real people. Thank you. Good and so, point. look, if kids are doing sex play from six and seven on, if they feel like it, with age-appropriate friends, then porn isn't their only sexual experience. You know, they're also having a sexual experience of, you know, fooling around during nap time with, you know, Sally next door. You know, and, and, and well, there's a there radical. Are no sexually, there are no culturally acceptable um, standards. This hasn't been studied. It can't be funded. I mean, just right. talking about it, it pisses people off. Well, exactly. And so if it's if it's okay, you know, if you have access to images of sex, but you don't have access to real people to have sex with, that's going to cause a lot of problems. Well, from, from so an integral perspective, the images might not be the solution. Maybe providing more permission for age-appropriate sexual play, maybe that's the solution. Well, that's a very radical thought, Keith. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, you I mean, let's, uh, you know, let's see how that goes. Uh, 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 but, you know, from an <laughs> integral perspective, that actually is reaching back and bringing forth tribal uh, sensibility. That's exactly right. You know, in, in tribal kids, cultures, kids, you know, they could play appropriately sexually. That's right. If you look at hunter-gatherer, uh, groups. The kids are doing sexual play with each other at 6, 7, 8. They're experimenting with intercourse at 11 and 12 with, with each other. But, you know, they're all skinny and running around in the jungle all the time, wherever the hell they're running around. And so they don't really become fertile until they're 17 or 18. Right. Uh, but th th there's, there's, a, there's a cultural norm for age-appropriate um, consensual sexual play. And it can be talked about. Um, it can be talked about not just with other kids, but with adults. And in our culture, if you have a sexual uh, experiment with, you know, you're 11 years old and you have a sleepover, you have a little sexual experiment with whoever you're sleeping over with, you really can't go home and talk to your mom and dad about it. Okay? At least not when I was a kid. No. 
uh, particularly when I was a kid, if it was same sex, you know, forget about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, no, it was horrible. In 60s America, you know, just go, go insane. You know, you'd, you'd end up in some clinic. Yeah. And so having, having the, the conversation normalized in families, you know, my kids talk to me about their sex lives. They've been talking to me about their sex lives all their lives when they were, you know, fooling yeah. around with other people. And, you know, and, and at least in those areas, my kids are remarkably not fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right on. Well, you could, there, there's a the big scandal going on here in Colorado, actually, it's getting a lot of national attention with this sexting ring in oh, yeah. Canyon City High School where hundreds of students had pictures of each other in various stages of undress and sex. And, um, you know, and they're having meetings and the parents and the football team can't play their last game. And, you know, what what do you expect? Yeah, give me a break. You know, for me, I look at that and I go, you cannot stuff the genie in the bottle. Right. So, you know. These kids are sexually mature physically. They're, you know, hormonally crazed, just like we were. And they have an option, you know, they have a way of actually working with it and, and, and playing with it. It's actually pretty safe. Now, I know there's lots of, uh, you know, bullying and that sort of thing that goes on that, that, that uh, you know, there's a lot of problems that come with it. And this is just part of the complexity, I guess, of what we have available to us and what we're working with now. But uh, well, there's a piece many, of it that groups, feels like it's probably... How many conversations have been had about, okay, here's what healthy masturbation is. Yes. Here's what healthy sexual play is between 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Here's what healthy sexual uh, hookups are. You know, if you're doing it, this is how you do it and, and avoid um, disease. Um, here's, here's healthy sexual communication. You know, if you, if you don't allow that and provide direction and permission and guidance around that, and the only way the kids can, their sec, can get their sexuality expressed is autoerotically with porn or indirectly, you know, sexing each other, the sex, the sex drives are going to pour out in, into those channels. Yeah. So, you know, give them some channels that are healthy channels and then see what happens. And there's yeah. still pathology that will emerge, but, you know, pathology is easier to see when you have healthy expressions to contrast it with. Yeah. It's easy like the whole drug and alcohol thing. You know, if you don't have, if you don't normalize, you know, what's healthy drinking? What's healthy pot smoking, for instance? What's healthy psychedelic taking? If you can have a standard for that, then you can contrast it with unhealthy drinking, unhealthy pot smoking, unhealthy psychedelic taking, and so on. Okay, so, you know, if you, the dialectic always exists. If we just look at a pathology wing and don't look at the, the health wing, then it's going to cause a lot of cultural problems. Right on. That's so, what we're seeing. Yeah. And that's kind of cultural sex therapy right there. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're doing it. I mean, I think we're kicking and screaming as we sort of progress in these areas. But, you know, all of that is in the culture now. The, the sort of um, the virtual and the tech and it's, it's all for younger people. It's just going to be part of how it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And, in the, and you know, for me, I think that the, the, the direction – that I see, and I like it. It's just kind of a normalization of being yes, human. Yes, exactly. And normalization of our sexuality. Yes. Normalization of our drives. Yes. And, and yes. now, you know, what are, what are healthy ways of, of expressing them? What are healthy ways of acting them that actually feed into our de- development? Yeah. I mean, well, I it, it helps us to be. To, and I've told this story before too. One of my son's classes, they invited me to come in because they heard that I did sex therapy. 
And so this one guy raised, it was a great lecture, even though everybody got in trouble afterwards. But, but, you know, during the lecture, you know, we were all having a great dialogue. And this one kid said, well, why can't I just go, you know, find some girl to rave and hook up and then, you know, move on to another person, then move on to another person, move on to another person. And I'll say, well, I don't have a moral problem with that. I have a practical problem with that. I have a practical problem with you normalizing a not basically anonymous sex, with you indiscriminately getting sexually engaged. Every time you get sexually engaged, you, there's a possibility of disease, there's a possibility of pregnancy, there's a possibility of deeper engagement. If you, if you find somebody that you like sexually, but you're not looking at other variables, you might fall in love with somebody who's profoundly self-destructive. I've seen this happen with a lot of adolescents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're practicing you're practicing um, expressions of relationship and sexuality that have vast hazards for you developmentally. You know, now, if you're hooking up with girls that you think are five-star candidates where they seem healthy, um, you know, they seem like the kind of person you'd want to get to know better, for instance, then at least you're practicing that kind of discernment. But if you're practicing that kind of discernment and then when you get tired of her after a little while and then you move on to another person, that particular form of sexuality leads you to a desert relationally. Yeah. And, I've, and I told the guy, I've worked with men in their 30s and 40s who've been so good at that that they find themselves in an existential wasteland yearning for family and not being able to create it because they just have no skills at establishing and maintaining an erotic relationship past the initial romantic infatuation. Hmm. Yeah. And so you need to learn those things. Yeah. I don't think I reached that guy, but I think some of the other people Well, in yeah, but group. I think you, you really identified a problem that a lot of people find themselves in. Oh, uh, yeah. Probably a lot of people listening to this. You well, and the other thing about sex therapy is that we're dealing with, with solutions to sex problems that cause more love and more intimacy. An affair is a solution to a sex problem that causes more damage and more wounding. People go to affairs often as solutions. You know, their drives take them to an affair because that's where they're, it, it's, it, in a way, it's easier to go there to get needs met um, sometimes, even, or, or even it's easier to say yes to the opportunity without having some kind of clarity about what you're doing in your relationship. Um, it's easier to do that than to, to, to go deeper and say, hmm, you know, um, if I'm vulnerable to this particular kind of thrill, what do I need to be creating in my intimate relationship so I'm yeah. not vulnerable to it? Yeah. If you can do that before the secret affair happens, before the attachment injury and the betrayal happens with your partner, boy, you're, you're, you're light years ahead of the people that have to deal with that stuff after the betrayal and after the attachment injury. And I know, I've, I've worked with people on both sides of that. And I tell people that. Yeah. And it's not like you can't work on both sides, but it's a hell of a lot easier to work on the front side when, where the affair hasn't happened than on the back side after the affair has happened and created right. uh, shit. Well, don't you have a book on that topic? I have a book called 100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair, but I just haven't found a publisher for that book. Yet. Oh, I see. <laughs> I, it's hard to me imagine why I can't, why people won't pick that up. I mean, yeah, I bet people would pick God. that up, actually. <laughs> I wrote that book, and I find it really useful. Yeah. Well, we've <laughs> talked about you know principles from it a number of times, and um, and I always appreciate it. And really, you know, all of your stuff, Keith. And and I, I think see we're getting on the end of our time here. But is there any other you know point you want to make about this integral sex therapy, or or anywhere you want to point people as we think about this? Yes, two things. One, check out my uh, my little mini classes on talking to your lover about sex. Um, if you're interested in this area, those will be quite useful. Secondly, um, rec- recognize that 
in a, hell, in a happy relationship, you don't have to be turned on to each other all the time. But you do need to be turned on to each other regularly where, where one person's masculine really focuses on the other person's feminine. Mm-hmm. And one person leads the other person. The other person allows themselves to be led into the dance of eroticism. And every couple has their own balance of how much of that keeps them vibrant. And it's everybody's responsibility to make that happen in their relationship. And during those moments, if you're the more masculine person, you need to give your feminine up to your partner and be the embodiment of masculine presence. Here, here. Impeccability, trustability. And if you're the feminine, you need to give all your masculine to the partner and be the embodiment of feminine radiance, clear channel of love, you know, the goddess. And those moments are necessary and important. And if you can't make those happen with enough regularity that you both feel fulfilled, get some help and learn how to do it because that's an important part of a joyful and, and vibrant marriage. Wow. Keith, you got me all excited. <laughs> I love getting you excited. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do. Well, as always, Dr. Keith, a great uh, discussion on a really, you know, pivotal and, and, and such an important topic. I want to thank everybody for listening. We have a, a nice growing audience of people and uh, love hearing from you. Uh, you can respond at jeff at dailyevolver.com. There's a tab for uh, leaving a voicemail on my website. And um, and you can write to Keith there too. And we always share the feedback and it's good fun. So thank you so we much love for getting listening. Feedback. And thanks for listening, everybody. You bet. All right, Keith, will you take care? And we'll uh, be back next time for another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. The Shrink and the Pundit. All right. <laughs> Bye-bye, folks. Bye-bye.